Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have Rachel Astarte. She is a holistic psychotherapist, transformational coach, and spiritual counselor specializing in self, solitude, and service. She works with people in midlife who have been called to solitude to do deep psycho-spiritual work and guides them towards polishing the gem of their true selves towards mentorship in our evolving world. She's also the author of a book, Celebrating Solitude, How to Discover and Honor Your Highest Self, and she hosts a podcast, Self Talk with Rachel Astarte. Sounds like a perfect guest for Coffin Talk, so with no further delays, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's really cool to have you on. We've never had anyone like you, which we're always looking for, so I'm sure you get that a lot. And of course, in addition to asking you to define what a holistic psychotherapist is a little more um, and other questions, we always ask our guests, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? <laughs> um, all good questions. Uh, I'm 53. I grew up, um, I was born in Illinois, but I was only there for about three to six weeks. I think it was six weeks. And then I moved to New York State, upstate. Um, and I've, I've essentially been in New Yorker my whole life. I lived upstate, moved down to Manhattan for a big chunk of my life. Now I'm in Rockland County. Uh, but I did live in New Mexico for a while and Boston and India and uh, a whole bunch of places. So, but I, I do consider myself a New Yorker. And well, technically I'm Gen X. And, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to classify that, yeah, that's what I fall into. Do I feel like I belong? I mean, sure. I mean, my generation has seen so, you know, we, we went from like rotary phones and pre ATM to where we are now. So, we're pretty resilient, you know, uh, and so I still very much, you know, cassettes and CDs and you know vinyl in there too. And now we're back to vinyl um, and digital. So all of this exciting stuff has has happened so far during my lifetime. Um, so, but do I identify? I identify with what we've gone through, but I don't really consider myself a of a particular era or generation. Yeah, that's a good answer. And I like that. And we don't get a lot of Gen Xers. And it's partly because we you are a small generation. And I say we you because I'm technically at the end of it. I'm also technically at the beginning of millennials. I don't belong to either. But I do. I saw most of the things you said, um, skipping rotary, except at my grandparents house. Um, but the reason I ask it as a question is I do feel like people talk about culture wars and generational crises. So I'm trying to actually bridge how much none of us really buy into that BS. Um, or, you know, a few people do but uh, so I love your answer. And then I also heard, just coincidentally today, a fellow Gen Xer talking about being a Gen Xer and how they're rewriting their own reputation as they get older. And I thought I was laughing because originally Gen X was called the slacker generation. And the idea was that like, we weren't into work. But now with the current labor crisis, they're saying that we're very much into work. Yeah, I, I agree. Definitely. I mean, it's, and I love the idea of, I think every generation should be able to rewrite. Well, that's like the whole basis of what I do is, is throwing away labels. Um, you know, yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. It keeps us really stymied in our lives, you know, from a cultural perspective, I get it. I, I understand it's nice to sort of organize and categorize our brains love to do that, but yeah. Well, yeah, I would love to know, um, first, just a quick, by your words, definition of what exactly a holistic psychotherapist is. And you could even break down psychotherapist, too, for our listening audience, because I think it's always interesting. And then uh, once once you get that definition going, we can kind of get into how you got into it and what you do. Sure. So 
a psychotherapist is uh, is someone who works with mental, you know, the mental mind, you know, psychotherapist, psycho psyche, the mind, uh, and therapy, of course, is, is healing, right? So we're healing the mind. When I do as a as a holistic psychotherapist, um, I add the other very important two elements in there, which is the mind and the body. So we're working with mind, body, and spirit, and and they all are all are essential in you know who we are as a person, how we function, um, and each of them have very important roles uh, in our lives to to be in alignment with each other so that we can be um, so that we can function in in the best possible way in the world that, that we live in. So we might bring in meditation, uh, we might bring in some uh, whatever. I ask my my clients, all of them, in the first time we speak, what their spirituality is. So I work with very religious people and I also work with people who are uh, absolutely anti-religion. I work with spiritual people. Um, I teach, of course, I, I also teach as a um, online faculty member at a, at a healing a school for healing uh, healers, you know, um, and I teach a, a spiritual traditions course. And so I feel really comfortable switching back and forth between a number of different religions and using that language. To me, it's all the same one way or another. So there's the spiritual aspect of, of who we are, how we show up in the world, uh, what our place is. And then we have the physical part of our body. Our bodies are allies. They're here to serve us and work with us. And so we use the body that way, doing somatic work and working with the vagus nerve and working with movements and that kind of thing. And then, of course, there's the mind, which is a traditional psychotherapist. You know, let's find out what unhelpful beliefs you might be carrying or behaviors you might be doing that um, that are keeping you from being where you want to be. Wow. That was a great answer. Thank you. That definitely answered any of the questions I would need to know before we can get more in-depth into it all. Um, I think the other question I want to ask that's just kind of like random but is associated to me, the the name of your podcast is Self-Talk. Is Self-Talk literally like talking to yourself and does it have to be out loud or internal? Or is that like a, necessarily a good or bad thing to do? Like what, what does Self-Talk mean to you? Uh, that's a great question. So Self-Talk originally, the, the podcast originally started for my therapy patients who wanted to be able to stay in touch with the stuff we were working on in between sessions. So the way we speak to ourselves internally is really where is the common understanding of what self-talk means. Um, but of course, I love double entendres as a writer. So we also just talk about the self and how to be, how to show up. So, um, so it's both really. And in terms of talking to yourself, I am a huge proponent of out loud talking to myself. I do it all the time. <laughs> I have a ongoing conversations with myself on a regular basis. Um, and I do find it to be extremely therapeutic. So I highly recommend people try it if you haven't. So I'm also a writer and I, I write fiction and nonfiction. And a lot of my um, fiction novels, I, I take them to workshops. And I have noticed something really interesting, which is anytime a character talks to themselves uh, in, in anyone's work, not just mine, most of the men at the table, and these are people who um, identify as men in case anyone listening cares, I, I am into all that uh, pronoun and gender stuff if you want me to be, but this is still people who identify as men. 
They say, no one talks out loud, that's BS. And then uh, women, people who identify as women, always say, yes, we do, we talk out loud. And I can tell you personally, I've never talked out loud to myself, but I do talk out internally out loud to myself. Have you discovered anything like that? I mean, are you willing to like comment on that at all? I haven't. That's news to me. Um, and, and it's interesting that you mention it in a fiction workshop. I just finished a novel where my goal was to have the character talking to herself and I was going to do it in a different font and it just failed miserably. So I didn't, it just looked terrible. Like I, it was way trying way too hard. So, uh, cause I really wanted to bring that across is that, yeah, we talk to ourselves out loud and it just, it, it, flopped but i've never heard that before that's really interesting that men would say i don't talk to myself out loud and women do interesting yeah it was, it was a weird like thing and, and none of the men say we don't talk to ourselves internally so everyone agrees that like to be human is to have kind of you know some extent of an inner monologue that talks to itself and so back to your career and, and your brilliance when you mentioned that the body is here to serve us but also work with us i i have issues not with what you said but i have issues sometimes with like my body, like my ankle will randomly hurt and I don't think I did anything to deserve it, quote unquote. And like, and then I want it to heal faster and it's not healing faster. Do you believe that there's definitely like a mental connection to not only experiencing an injury, but also into how quickly it's going to heal? Well, I think they, I think they're definitely related. Absolutely. Can you think your way out of cancer? I, I mean, like, I don't know if that's true. Maybe some people can. I'm, I don't have all of the data in front of me, but I do know, yeah, if we have an ailment, it really does help to sit with it. What's going on? Tell me what's happening with you. There were times, uh, I remember a while back, um, but I had broken my foot and um, same, you know, same as usual. You go to the doctor, I got the boot, whatever. And they said, take your foot out of the boot for a couple of hours at night. And um instinctively I remember holding my foot as though it were a tiny little baby and the tears would just come not because I was in pain but because I realized my body was telling me that it was hurt and and so I did what I could to soothe it and there's this connection between a wounded part of yourself and and the whole you know for all like fractal beings you know even a tiny part of us is the whole of us so to be able to communicate with your body in that way, to even if you can't heal it, to just say, I'm so sorry you're hurt. And and let me just put the salve on it or, you know, let me hold you for a second or massage a tight muscle or whatever it might be. Rather than saying, this thing has happened to my body, I feel betrayed. It's a different way to interact with the vessel that carries your spirit around. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, ontology is the study of the state of being, the philosophy of the idea of being. And so obviously, if you're going to mention spirituality, I my brain immediately goes to ontology. You know, Rene Descartes is not an ontologist at all, but he said, I think, therefore I am. Where are you between these two famous ideas? And, and like, how do you justify it to anyone since, technically speaking, the experience of being is really the only evidence of the experience of being? And, and that, that's fine, too. So what, what we're really what we're really talking about here is, you know, and I talk with my son about this all he's twelve, so we have these in-depth conversations about the nature of being. I know, because <laughs> he's awesome. a strict atheist and I'm you know so I'm an animist and I you know there's there's spirit and everything. We're we're having lovely conversations about this very thing. 
so I don't claim to have all the answers, but from my view of things, the way that I joke about it with him is, you know, this is all a video game, right? We're all, this is all, it's we, what we are seeing. And then of course we're looking at physics too, right? And we're looking at super positioning. It's like, as we look at something, the way that we see it, what we're, in other words, what we're testing for uh, is what we see. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Is it a wave? Well, it's whatever you're testing for. And so in that regard, I think therefore I am, great you know that's if that's what you are seeing if that's what your position is then that is your reality which is a beautiful thing because it allows for so many different avenues of of experience of this life i'm not sure if that answers your question i mean it answers it definitely to the extent that i would believe anyone could answer such a vague and weird question but um i love the interaction between you and your 12 year old son so i'd actually like to follow it up with since you discussed that i'm assuming you've discussed what the show is about which is death and how our views on death affect the way we live so i'd like to cobble together the actual traditional question of the show which is i'd love to hear your answer to what do you think is going to happen when you die but then i'd also like to know what you and your son discuss about death since you're his mother and naturally, that's going to be a huge issue for him as you get older and he gets older. Yeah. Okay. So the first question is, what do I think is going to happen after we die? I take a scientific approach to this to start, which is that energy never dies. It just changes form. So with that, that can lean beautifully into a Buddhist perspective, right? So then really the only challenge we have is to let go of attachments. Right. So there will never be, you know, Mike in his Mikeness, Rachel in her Rachelness. That will go. Um, and so what a beautiful uh, dance we have on this earth in this energetic iteration that we got for a few decades. So, um, so yeah, you change form. That's science. You can't really, that one we know. What happens to us spiritually, um, who... I love that absolutely no one knows. Isn't that amazing? It's the one thing that we're most sure of in the world uh, the moment that you're born, that at some point your life will cease. And we don't talk about it. And lots of people have experienced what they've experienced, and it certainly adds to the, adds to the story of, of what possibly could happen. But we won't know until we get there. And I love that. I love that mystery. But... In terms of our energy, you know, our spirit, if we're going to talk about it in, in that way, I do believe that there is a collective consciousness. And I believe that what we, what we experience in this life kind of rejoins the collective consciousness, right? If we talk about Carl Jung and the collective unconscious, right, all of that is a priori part of who we are when we come into this human form. So um, I believe that that works for consciousness as well, that, you know, there is a, a way that there's an organization, you know, when we look at um, fractals, when we look at um, the, the, the mirroring that happens in nature, um, for example, the way, this is a very basic one, but the way, um, a walnut looks like a brain. And as it turns out, walnuts are really good for your brain. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like nature is speaking to us, right? 
and and the shamans know this too like they look at the plants and talk with the plants and and say okay well this one is for this ailment and i had a beautiful opportunity to work with a medicine man or, or study some of it, what he was teaching in um rural northern mm -hmm. india and um and he was just walking through what looked like a field of of just wild stuff and he was able to move grasses aside and say oh that's for diarrhea and that one's for acne and that one's amazing right so so how do we know because we we're constantly speaking to one another so when we're not here anymore i do believe that consciousness does return to the collective and and come back um in whatever form if if we even come back in human form which i don't know if we do or not and to me, that's not really relevant. You're you're very easy to talk to, and you're very good at explaining things, and you're naturally smart. But you're also one of those cool, smart people who knows how to like break it down for everyone. So I just want to thank you midway through the interview because my job would only be to really break down things you say if they're too heady. Whereas I just get to the, the pleasure of asking you awesome questions. With that said, I'm dying to know what is your opinion then on morality because you sound absurdly fair. Do you feel like there's an actual like? punishment or incentive system to this human experience hey everybody i just want to thank you so much for listening to the show our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up you get bonus monthly podcasts you get a book i wrote and you also get extra essays and other content so please head over to mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com and sign up today you know, I think I think that the punishment or reward or whatever is within your own individual experience, right? So, is there a damning God, or is there a, uh, you know, a, a punishing God? No, I, I absolutely not. That's not what the universe is too busy for. That <laughs> you know, we, the universe is a is a creator and a destroyer, and that is just the natural flow of things. So, so. Does it serve you to be a jerk in your life? Like, well, if there's no God, then what does it matter? Which I think you're asking in something in that direction, right? That's within you. So listen, you know, if you're going to be a jerk and, and since nothing, since it doesn't matter that, you know, now we're talking ethics and all of that, you have to sit with that. You have to really sit with what it's like to have that fiberglass under your skin of anger and the desire to harm that will do a number on you physically after a while you know stress raised cortisol levels inflammation illness it's very no 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 i like being a jerk i'm, I'm very comfortable with being a jerk I, you know i could hear that too but even that is that's a defense mechanism right so the, the, there's the us and them so when we realize that when we harm we're actually harming ourselves, right? So everything is interconnected. I don't mean that in a woo-woo way. I'm a science person and a spirit person. We are all interconnected. So when you harm someone else, you are actually harming an extension of yourself. And to sit with that space of hatred or, or um, judgment or all that, that lives as energy in your body. So you are the one who's punishing yourself. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. So you've got your judgment and your angry God right already inside of you. That's up to you how you choose to live and what you want to send to the to collective consciousness after you're not here anymore.
that was really cool. That was a, a very good answer. And I, I would have accepted that answer throughout my many phases of philosophy at like 12, 15, 18, 30. Like I would have, that would have gelled with all different versions of my ever changing uh, philosophy. So that's cool. And so kind of to that point, whenever I interview anyone who does therapy, I'm always dying to know the following. Who is technically for you harder to treat? Someone who is really, really, really self-aware or someone who is really not self-aware? What a wonderful question. If there are, I, I love challenges. So I, I'm, I just got instantly very excited by both. Um, so sometimes it's a pain with someone who is very aware because they've closed their minds. Like this is the past. This is what I know. Um, and, but, but as a therapist, other issues come up based on that. And, and I, I work with some people um, in fact, most of the people that I work with are on some kind of psychospiritual path and yet can't figure out why does my mother still make me cry, you know? <laughs> so we're working with that stuff. And, and, that's, and people who are not aware, that's a, that's a different kind of wonderful challenge because I get to watch that blossom. I get, to real, I get to show them that you have all the tools in your toolkit already. You just didn't know they were there. That's a whole different kind of fun thing to, to do. But not everybody is ready or wants to. And, and that's, that's what I understand too. Again, it's like, we're all here to do what we're here, whatever dance we're here to do on this earth. But I have to assume that if someone's calling me for therapy, that they're willing to do the work. So each one can be very exciting in its own way. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And then you brought up earlier that really the only challenge is to let go of our attachments. Do you have any quick advice to give to people who are maybe like having trouble with that attachment? Sure. During a quick interview that I will do what Buddhists for 5,000 years have not been able to do. Sure. Um, <laughs> not a problem. I work that right out. Um, <laughs> um, it's a practice, isn't it? It's, it's really understanding that even your attachments are holy even your need to, you know, I see everything coming back to love, right? So it's like, I have, I have an attachment to my family. I don't want to leave them. I have an attachment to uh, the smell of freshly cut grass. I have an attachment to the stars over Santa Fe at night. But when you start to really list out the things you're attached to, you begin to realize those are also extensions of yourself. So they, are, they never leave you. And there's also a very lovely part that, that of, and I don't by any means, any, by any means mean to be cavalier about death um, because it's, it's a thing. And, the, you know, it's a, I, in fact, I thank you for having this podcast because we need to talk about it. But, um, but what the things that we are attached to are really just facets of what makes the whole so beautiful. And so if you can list, a book full of all the things you're afraid to leave when you die, there's another library or a million libraries full of things that you get when you are part of the collective again, when you return home to the all. You won't be small, you know, we're small and heavy here in this place. So we gather to us all the things that make us comfortable. When we're not part of it anymore, when we're part of all of it, then you get everything, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, but you don't realize because you're not you. That's the bliss that a lot of people talk about in near-death experiences. I'm not me anymore. Or in psychedelic experiences, the, the, death, the ego death. 
I don't exist. I am one with everything. And that is the most beautiful feeling in the world. Yeah. I mean, I've had it in fleeting moments, um, both sober and on psychedelics. So I know that it's achievable in any state, but it's, it's fleeting. And, uh, I've learned since to not chase the like emotional reaction to that, but to actually chase the result and to not chase, cause that would be ironic, but you know, to seek that. So, um, well, you've done an amazing job of selling yourself to my audience and I'm sure hopefully you'll get some inquiries, but I would like to know, cause I think it's a great fun way to end the interview. What's uh, what do you consider your greatest success story? And it doesn't have to be in therapy, just in, in your own life or through therapy. My kid, you know, I mean, that's such an obvious one, but, um, but he amazes me every day. I, I was not, so I had one child late in life. I was 40 when I had him. And so <laughs> all of your listeners are doing the math because they just said I'm 53. He's turning 13 in April. Anyway, I had this very interesting postpartum with him, which was I felt very guilty for bringing him to this heavy place wow. because he was a spark of the universe. And I brought him here and I cried and cried and cried and breastfeeding and crying. And I'm so sorry I brought you here. And he's, you know, and he was a very cry. He cried a lot as a baby, but um, my mother always says, cause he's so smart. Well, the, he, and he's frustrated because he can't communicate. Um, but what ended up happening was I started to feel as though he wasn't mine, that he belonged to some, I was his, the, you know, I was his caretaker and he came from somewhere else. Right. And I think that helped me a lot to realize that, um, what, what a beautiful thing. I did create this person in my body and, and yet he's infused with his own spirit. Um, and I get to be around that. So that's kind of cool. So that would be the easy answer. I had my second child at, she was born when I was 40. And I would like to have one more with my wife. So, you know, I'll be 41, 42 when that child hopefully is born. So I loved the way you described it. But I've also had the exact same thoughts with my first son as well. And it's just a, it's a strange feeling. But uh, I do like the way you pulled it all together. I don't know. I just, I always thought about like, even if my son or daughter were to end up being depressed and suicidal and God forbid were to act on that, I still don't think I was like a bully to like give a chance to a soul or whatever it is. So I, I like the way you answered that. I thought that was in incredibly sensitive, intelligent, and honest. Would you like to share another success story like from your career? Rather than calling it a success story, I would say that I have been very appreciative of my work ethic. <laughs> that I, I always feel like it's I have a purpose and whatever that looks like, whether, you know, cause I started out in the arts, so whether it was writing or acting or, uh, or whatever, but I, my career has evolved as in a necessary way. And, and I, I actually wanted to share this only because I think other people would benefit as well. Sometimes we think that we have made a career change or we started down one path and we, we didn't like it and we went somewhere else and we feel like, Maybe we're jack of all trades or whatever. I say you are crafting the person that you're meant to be, and you take, you know, every experience that you have culminates into whatever it is that you're designed to do. So, as a psychotherapist, if you told me when I was 21 and trying to be an actor in New York City that that's what I was going to be doing, I wouldn't be able to understand how the two were connected, but now I do, you know, because. Um, you have to have a, a sense of presence and a, a voice and, and to be able to um, listen 
to other people, the way you listen to other actors in a scene. So that's what I'm trying to say is just just all of the different things that I've done bringing me to here and, and my life and my career continues to evolve, which I'm very grateful for. Wow. I could not agree more. So I'm excited for like the next 10, 12 years because you're actually like really invigorating me. And I, I did get a sense when I turned 40 that the next 20 years were going to be my favorite years of my life. I feel so much love and appreciation and gratitude and I take things a lot lighter and you know, I just, the perspective's everything. So I just want to thank you again, Rachel. This has been a great interview. I feel such an invigorated sense of self and, and I'm looking forward to and appreciating the many thoughts I'm going to have after this interview. And for everyone listening at home, the number one way to support the show is just to head over to mikeyup.com and subscribe to the free weekly letter that also accompanies the podcast and as always we really appreciate your listening to the show and your support and uh coffin talk is now in its third year and we don't plan on going anywhere so thank you for checking in my name is mike oppenheim and we will see you soon